You ever seen one of those? It's a pretty amazing thing. An unassisted triple play where you don't need anyone else who's wearing the same jersey as you to get all three outs in rather dramatic fashion. As a matter of fact, I I googled it so you know that this is true. Um, Google says that in the history of Major League Baseball, there have only been 15 unassisted triple plays. They're exceedingly rare. And instead of just making you really good at Trivial Pursuit here this morning, um, there's a tie-in to our scripture. Because as we've been journeying through Matthew's gospel and looking at Jesus' last week before his crucifixion, in a proverbial fashion, Jesus has performed an unassisted triple play himself in the parables included in Matthew 21 and Matthew 22. Jesus has issued a trilogy of judgment parables, all increasing in their intensity. He tells the story of the two sons. He asks one to go work in his vineyard, and he says, sure, I'll go, but then he never does it. And then there's the son who says, no, I'm not going to do it, but he ends up going. And he's telling this as a parable of what the Jewish religious leaders are like. Last week, he tells the story of the vineyard owners who are tenant farmers who decide to keep all of the crop for themselves and then try to uh, take over the vineyard for themselves by killing the son who get evicted. And today he tells the story of the wedding banquet and the people's rejection of the invitation to attend. I get the sense that while Jesus is accompanied by his disciples in this last week, like they're waiting for lightning to strike as Jesus keeps like pronouncing judgment on all the religious leaders. Like we don't hear anything from the disciples this last week. Like Jesus has got this all by himself. They're there for moral support, but they're certainly not going to open their mouth as these heavyweights clash over what the nature of a true relationship with God looks like. And so we're going to continue our story here this morning, and we're going to see the third of these three judgment parables this morning. It'll be Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. The words will be on the screen, but you can also follow along in the Pew Bibles in front of you, page 699. And to begin with, we see this original picture in verses 1 and 2 of God's gracious invitation to a joyous occasion. God's gracious invitation to a joyous invitation uh, occasion. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. God's word says, Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. That's the introduction. Really, one simple verse. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. There is comparison language that is used. And the kingdom of heaven is like a king giving a wedding banquet for his son. As we read through the passage, it will become very clear to us that God is the king, the son is Jesus, and the invitees are the nation of Israel. What are they being invited to? A wedding banquet. I don't know how often you have been invited by a king to a wedding banquet, but I think if I ever got that invitation, I would find a way to mark everything else off my calendar so that I could attend that. Because listen, we don't have kings and we don't have queens, but I guarantee you, if you're old enough, you remember when Prince Charles and Princess Di got married. 
My wife certainly did. I think she played dress-up that day, too. I mean, everybody wants to be a princess. And you think about it, it's a joyous and a festive occasion. Think about the most over-the-top wedding that you've ever been to. And, and by the way, does anyone know what the average price for a wedding is nowadays? Oh, fathers, listen up. $26,000. Like, somebody just had the uh, angina. I saw him grabbing, you know. $26,000 for a wedding. Listen, take that and then amplify it by going to a king's son's wedding. It will be the most lavish preparations you've ever seen, the most exquisite of food, the most incredible pageantry, the most posh decorations. And what I love about this is being the king, making the invitation, this would be a countrywide celebration that would last for days. It would be a new national holiday for that year. There's only one time that the king's son is going to get married and they're going to celebrate it notoriously. And here's what I love. When he says that this wedding is like the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about how God graciously invites people to be in fellowship with him. God is saying, I'm having a party and I want you to be there. Moreover, when we get to the party, this is not a Bring your own stuff. It's not a potluck party. You don't, you don't bring your potluck, whatever, you know. If any, the only people, I had a young lady that I worked with that she never liked potluck. She didn't grow up Baptist. She was Lutheran. She would only eat potluck food from people that she knew. So she always asked people to write their names on their dish because if she didn't know who you were, she was not going to eat your food. And so like if the only people who eat your macaroni and cheese are your family, don't bring it to potluck. You need to bring the mac and cheese that everybody wants to eat. That's just the way that it works. But you, this is not a potluck party. This is the king has made every provision. Every food is exquisite. You may try some stuff you've never had before because the king has brought food from every corner of the earth, every kind of delicacy, and he has richly supplied from his treasure house everything for you to have. That's God's invitation. And I think sometimes we make God's invitation sound like he's inviting us to like keep a list of rules. He's inviting us to a relationship with him. And instead of God's call to repentance being a dreadful list of rules, God's call is a call to our deepest joy. And when God is trying to think of a way to explain the egregiousness of ignoring his invitation... He uses the illustration of a wedding. Because a wedding is a happy and festive occasion. A wedding is a good thing. And our passage this morning holds up marriage as something that is significant and to be celebrated. Yet, in our day and age, marriage seems to have lost some of its luster. Because marriage has had its reputation tarnished, and this is not a new thing. This has been a long, ongoing process. Marriage's reputation has been tarnished through adultery, through divorce, and most recently through redefinition. In light of these current realities, it is especially important for us as the people of God to celebrate and to encourage marriages that indeed look to the gospel for its definition and for its character. 
And so today, instead of illustrating this principle by telling you a story, I'd rather show you one. Um, Gil and Andrea Alda celebrated their 16th wedding anniversary this week. And as a part of celebrating their anniversary, they're going to come this morning and they're going to renew their vows because wedding, uh, we- marriage is something to be celebrated. So Gil and Andrea, join me here this morning. Uh, other men in the room, I just want you to know Gil's setting the bar really high for y'all. So um, I'll tell you a story, quick story. Uh, Gil was not going to tell Andrea that we were going to do this this morning. And um, that would not... You know, act like you're married. Get closer. <laughs> that would not have worked out well if you were, if you were being surprised right. here this morning. Here's why this is so significant. As we talk about building uh, strong families and being a strong faith family, um, there wasn't anybody really to witness your vows, and there were no real traditional vows. It was kind of done privately uh, before you were believers. And they've never had the opportunity to stand before people that they consider to be family and to make their vows of accountability to each other and to their faith family. And so they want to do that here this morning. And it is a privilege for us to... Y'all hold hands. There you go. All right, they don't need to see me. I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions here. And uh, when I get done with this, uh, if you'll just say after, after each statement, if you'll say, we do. Some charges that I think are very important. Will you both acknowledge your insufficiency for this task? and seek to be dependent upon His grace to empower you. We do. Will you ask God to develop within each of you a sense of humility that holds your spouse's interests above your own? We do. We do. When disagreement comes, and uh, it will, never. will you seek never to be disagreeable, never to let the sun set on your anger, and to cultivate a gentle, godly, and peacemaking spirit? We do. We do. Will you make it your goal to grow your marriage so that it might be considered a faithful example to future husbands and wives. We do. And will you seek to make this union permanent by pursuing Christ above all and the purity that flows from being a follower of Jesus? We do. And knowing your desire to glorify God in your marriage, I invite you to renew your vows. Gil, I'll say a long statement. When I get done, you say, I do. Gil, do you have this woman to be your cherished wife, to live together after God's word in the holy state of matrimony, Will you love her, honor her, lead her and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, do you commit to be faithful to Andrea as long as you both shall live? I do. Repeat these next phrases, phrase by phrase. I, Gil. I, Gil. Take you, Andrea. Take you, Andrea. To be my cherished wife. To be my cherished wife. To have and to hold. To have and to hold. From this day forward. From this day forward. For better or for worse. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. For richer or poorer. In sickness and in health. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. To love and to cherish. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. God has given you to me. God has given you to me. And I consecrate to him. And I consecrate to him. The love of my heart for you. The love of my heart for you. Andrew, I'll say a long phrase when, when I get done. Just that deal. Andrew, do you have this man to be your cherished husband? To live together after God's word in the holy state of matrimony? Will you love him? Honor him? Follow him and keep him in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, do you commit to be faithful to Gil as long as you both shall live? I do. I, Andrea, take you, Gil. I, Andrea, take you, Gil. To be my cherished husband. To be my cherished husband. To have and to hold. To have and to hold. From this day forward. From this day forward. For better, for worse. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. To love and to cherish. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. God has given you to me. God has given you to me. And I consecrate to him. And I consecrate to him. The love in my heart for you. The love in my heart for you.
it is my privilege, Gil and Andrea, to announce God's blessings upon you because of your desires to honor him. And my prayer for blessing upon you is that in accordance with your desire to walk according to his purposes uh, in the power of his spirit, that to that degree that his blessing will be upon you. And so it is my privilege to announce to this family, uh, again for the second time, Mr. and Mrs. Gil Alda. Gil, you may kiss your bride. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, y'all are supposed to go, aww. That was, um, that was not contrived. Gil called me two months ago, and I said, well, why don't we do it when we're talking about marriage in some way, shape, or form? And he said, well, our anniversary is the week that you're preaching on that. So, well, that's a coincidence, isn't it? What they didn't know is it's a parable of judgment. So don't apply the rest of this sermon to your, your marriage. <laughs> we see that the invitation to a wedding is a gracious invitation to a joyous occasion. This is a good thing that the king is inviting his subjects to. But for our second picture, we see a warning that we are to be warned by the people's obstinate refusal of joy for the dull drudgery of normal life. Listen to verses 3 through 7. The king sent out his slaves to summon those who had been invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. So again, he sent out other slaves and said, tell those who are invited, look, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the others... Well, they seized his slaves and treated them outrageously and killed them. So the king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned down their city. You see, this story is not so much about a wedding, a fictional wedding, as much as it is about receiving the master's invitation. You see, they received the invitation and they didn't hear it to an invitation to fellowship, to party with God at his expense. They made God's call sound like a terrible thing. And we have to remember, God has invited them to a wedding, not to a funeral. And yet, when we talk about God's call upon our life, We make it sound like if we actually surrender our life to God, he's going to make us eat broccoli for the rest of our life. He's going to make me do whatever I don't want to do. He's going to make me do that. He's going to make me, like, I have to drive the speed limit now. I have to not, I have to be nice to my wife. I have to do whatever. I can't, I can't have a potty mouth. I can't do this. And we make, we, we, we substitute whatever we think the list of rules is for the relationship with God that should be a joyous thing. And that's exactly what they do. Submitting to God's call is terrible. But yet here, the picture is that coming to the feast represents being in God's kingdom, enjoying fellowship with him, enjoying what he has supplied at his own expense. Typically, when an invitation like this happened, the invitation happened weeks in advance to let you know the wedding was coming. And once the preparations were fully made, those who had previously been invited were re-invited once it was ready. We see that here. They had already been invited previously. The servants are sent out to let them know that the preparations have been made and the people are so excited that they didn't even listen. It says that very thing. They paid no attention. 
completely apathetic. This would be an extreme insult to a good ruler. Because when a ruler invites you, when you're invited by the king, it is both an honor and a command. It's not optional. And what is interesting to note here, what makes this parable just a little bit different, is that it is a willful refusal. It is not that they couldn't come, it was that they wouldn't come. They didn't care. They were not interested. So the king shows patience by sending out a third invitation, the previous invitation that's not talked about, the second invitation that is refused, the third time, and any other king would have acted differently. Spurn me once, you won't spurn me twice. You see, kings are not genuinely known for their patience and humility. But what happens when he sends this third invitation? It says, quite honestly, that some didn't listen and just went about their normal affairs. Went to their farm, went to their business. It says that others acted treasonously and rebelliously and murdered the king's servants. We're reminded that John's gospel tells us about this clearly. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says this, that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Jesus came to his own people, his own ethnicity, his own tribe, and they rejected him. And you have to go, what in the world is going on? You know, I don't know many guys that necessarily enjoy going to countless weddings because you have to dress up. And like dressing up for most guys is just not on the list of things to do this weekend. But what is going on with this response to a wedding invitation? This is most unusual. I understand your antipathy towards neckties, okay? But I, I don't think anyone here has so dreaded going to a wedding that you have considered killing someone. So what in the world is causing this disproportionate reaction? You know, it's kind of an honor to be invited that somebody considers you close enough to come and witness their taking of vows. Is ordinary life truly more important? Is there anything about your farm or your business that has to be done today? No. Really what's happening here is an example of people exalting their own desires far above any desire to honor the king. Because honoring the king is not on their radar. And so, hey, go to church on Sunday? No, i got to wash my hair. Now, I've never heard anybody actually say that. That happened to me a lot in middle school if I asked a young lady what she was doing on Friday night. I, I met the world's population of Friday night hair-washing women. And I, I don't know what's going on. You can wash your hair another time. You know, hey, go to church on Sunday? No, it's, it's, I'm going to cut my grass. Well, I suppose, you know, if the weather's good, Sunday's a fine day for cutting your grass. But so is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Oh, no, I, 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 I got I to gotta go to the lake. There's nothing wrong with vacation, spending time with friends and loved ones. But if you're finding excuses that are keeping you from honoring the king, there's a problem. They want to exalt their own desires, and they have no desire to honor the king. And we see this because the violence towards the servants really indeed represents antagonism to the king. They are killing people who he has sent by his proxy. Now, the challenge here this morning is you're going to go, well, listen, <clears throat> I must be like a five-star general in the kingdom of God because I never thought about killing anyone for inviting me to a wedding. 
Uh, Listen, don't be so quick to evaluate yourself really highly because not everyone in this passage is a murderer. There are a small group of people that murdered, but everybody was interested in other things. So you hear someone say, hey, the king's got a wedding banquet that he wants you to come to. Hey, our church has got this going on. And the reply is an apathetic, ain't nobody got time for that. You caught that. Great. There's other things that are more important. Ain't got time for that. And the thing that's important here to realize is that that their rejection of the king's invitation was not so that they might do something evil, but that they might do something good. I mean, listen, God gave them their business and God gave them their farm. This is an issue of stewardship. But even stewarding a good thing can become evil when you're using God's good gifts to not honor him. So listen, you're not going to miss the kingdom of heaven simply by being a murderer. You're going to miss the kingdom of heaven by flittering your time away with things that are insignificant and you'll just happen to find out too late that your opportunity for repentance and faith have quietly slipped away. If you find yourself in this situation too busy to honor God, I'll just say two things. If you're too busy to serve God in His church, you're too busy. You're just plain too busy. Secondly, don't be so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. I can't tell you how many people I see, I mean, I see them predominantly at Walmart. I think Walmart devours your soul. I don't know what it is about being there. But I see people walking around with no soul, no vitality in their eyes, because all they are doing is just staying this far above the waterline. Going to work, paying the bills, going to work, paying the bills, going to work, paying the bills, eating dinner, going to work, paying the bills. And God has called us to so much more than that. The king is patient, but even godly patience has its limits. And we see an extreme punishment that is noted. These rebellious ones, these murderers are destroyed and their city is burnt up. Over the last three parables, we have seen a consistent theme of rejection. The sons reject the father, the vineyard farmers reject the vineyard owner, and here the wedding guests reject the king. But each time the punishments escalate. We don't know exactly what happens to the son that disobeyed. His, his fate is left open. But the tenant farmers get evicted. They get kicked out. And here now we see the king destroying those who spurn his invitations. Friends, one of God's perfections is his judgment and wrath. God is perfect in his wrath. Meaning there is not an ounce more of wrath than he needs to execute justice. Now, I don't know how you punish your kids. <clears throat> Have you ever had maybe just a thimble more wrath, justice that you've wanted to execute upon your kids than was necessary? That's sinful. God never has that. His wrath is perfect in its execution, and it will always fit the crime perfectly. Number three, despite man's rejection, God will most definitely have a crowd for his son's wedding banquet. The only question is whether you will be there. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then he told his slaves, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those slaves went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both 
evil and good, and the wedding banquet was filled with guests. If there's anything that you should note about the king in this passage, it's not the terribleness and the swiftness of his judgment, though that is certainly reason for us to stop and ponder. Are we living in accordance with God to receive his blessings or receive his judgment? We need to ask ourselves that question. If there's anything that should stick out to you about this king, it is his multiple, multiple invitations. He invites, he invites, he invites, he invites, he invites. And here there's an entirely second group that is invited. The king says the former group that he invited was unworthy. He's not talking about anything about socioeconomic class, status, race, ethnicity. Their unworthiness was their refusal to come. What makes you worthy is your willingness to respond to the king. In this offering to a second group of people, certainly foreshadows the picture of the gospel moving from the Jews to the entire world. Jesus is saying if the self-righteous Jews don't want to come, then perhaps the pagan Gentiles, perhaps the despised tax collectors, dare we even say it, maybe the prostitutes will be more ready to receive Jesus than the self-righteous Jews. Luke tells us very specifically in his parallel passage about this that it is really the riffraff of society. It is perhaps not property holders. It was, prob- it was perhaps property holders that got first invited. They could go and knock on the doors. These are people who have no home, have no property. Perhaps they are vagrants and vagabonds. And we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 1 that God delights to offer his gospel to people who know that they need it. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says this, that God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. There's, there's a way that it is appropriate for us to say when we gather for worship, this should be the biggest losers convention, and I'm the president. And if that offends you, then perhaps you think more highly of yourself than you ought. And if you think more highly of yourself than you ought, you inevitably think less of the gospel than you should. The gospel calls us to lay down our lives, to uh, give up our life in order to seek it. And we can't think much of ourself because God says you'll be disappointed in the great reversal of all things when the people who think they deserve to be at the front of the line, they're in the wrong line, period. They're elsewhere. Romans chapter 11, verse 11 says the same thing. I ask then, have they, the Jews, stumbled in order to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. I think with the second group that was invited, they were, uh, they were perhaps, um, they perhaps honored God more than the first group ever would have. And that's just me talking, but why? I certainly think this second group of people would be much more grateful than the first group of people ever would have been. Wow, I get to go to the palace. I get to eat the king's food. I would never get invited to this kind of thing. There was more gratitude. There was a greater joy expressed. And certainly, this would have been the most noteworthy party that the king ever would have thrown. Uh, because people would have expected the nobility to be invited. 
but not the riffraff. The banquet will be filled. And the Bible says that God will fill his banquet hall with people from every tribe and tongue and language, class and ethnicity. God says, whosoever may come. That means any kind of people. Man or woman, boy or girl, Jew or Greek, employed or unemployed. Any kind of people can come to the Lord. But we conclude with one final warning, and it's this. The whosoever cannot come however they want. The whosoever cannot come however they want. Look at verses 11 through 14. Verse 10 concludes, The wedding banquet was filled with guests. But when the king came in to view the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So the king said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is a strange incident regarding clothing. What in the world is going on? Well, as I just mentioned, Luke makes very specific mention that this was the lower elements of society. This was... Uh, to use kind of a colloquial term, the riffraff. How could they be expected to dress appropriately for the king's son's wedding? Isn't the king being strange here? He wants his banquet full, but then the very first thing after all of these invitations that he does is he comes in and he kicks somebody out. What's going on here? How could they be expected to dress nicely? It's very simple. The king provided the festive garments. And by not wearing the clothes, this man insults the gracious host who not only has graciously invited, graciously prepared, but graciously provides the garments that are necessary and appropriate to the occasion. You know, sometimes, sometimes, when you deal with a person like this man who is very willful, there is a reverse pride at his low status. Because he is poor, he feels a sense of entitlement. He feels deserving of the king's bounty, and he feels that he has the right to come before the king in his own terms. There's a word for that. It's presumption. Like Cain, who sought to offer God the offering that he wanted to give God, instead of the offering that God wanted, we cannot come to God on our own terms. Friends, the Bible is clear. All those who will be saved will be saved in the exact same fashion. It is through the name of Jesus Christ. You will not be saved by following the Torah. You will not be saved by following the teachings of Buddha and doing yoga. You will not be saved by following the name of Allah. You will not be saved by following the name of Deepak Chopra or Oprah Winfrey. You will be saved through the name of Christ because that is the name by which God has given us to be saved. And so this warning particularly is not for those who refuse the invitation. They have already been killed and their cities have been destroyed. This is for someone who makes it into the palace, those who have received the invitation. And the point is this, that even apparent acceptance is judged when we fail to come before God as he deserves. We cannot substitute man-made rules for God's gracious gospel. And the gospel is this. 
that God made him who knew no sin. Jesus was fully God, fully man, incarnated to be like us, to be a sacrifice in our place as a substitute that those of us who have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ can be clothed, robed with the righteousness of Christ so that when we stand before God, we no longer have to fear judgment even though our works are wicked because he sees the righteousness of Christ and not our wicked works. That is the gospel. And that is what I need if I'm going to make it. That is what you need if you will make it too. The garments provided by the king are a reference to the righteousness of Christ. You see, we can't come in our own righteousness because we have none. If we could squeeze all the righteousness out of all of us cumulatively today and put it in a bucket, I don't even know that it would amount to a drop. To try to bring this before the king is pathetic. And I love this because I think it's always good for scripture to interpret scripture. To illustrate this, you remember the story of Adam and Eve and I I don't know why we think they ate an apple. They ate forbidden fruit. That's probably the best way to leave it, whatever it was. Probably passion fruit. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Um, They ate some kind of fruit. And uh, it says that when they ate the fruit, what happened? It says their eyes were opened and they noticed what? You can say this in church. They were naked. Um, they were naked. They were naked beforehand. They just didn't realize it. They ate the fruit. Now they're naked. And then they try to make clothes for themselves. And, you know, when he left it up to Adam, he went and got poison ivy. It was not a good situation. <clears throat> God comes down. They hide from God. And then what does God do for Adam and Eve? He makes clothes for them. There's a sacrifice of an animal in their place. They deserve to die. The animal dies for them. And God covers their filthy nakedness. Isn't that the exact same thing that he does for us in Christ? Through faith, he imputes Christ's righteousness to us and transfers our sin to him that when we stand before the judge, he's judge, jury, executioner, we are guilty, but not once we place our faith in Christ. I love this. Isaiah 61.10 says this, that I greatly rejoice in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Friends, if you trust in the work of Christ, that there is no work that you can do to earn it, you trust in the work of Christ, you are clothed this way this morning. God has provided for you the garments of salvation. He's provided for you the robe of righteousness. And this is both the most terrible and beautiful truth that we can talk about in the Christian faith, that God demands righteousness, but he also supplies it. He does not demand what he does not supply. And what's beautiful about this inner righteousness is that when it works in our life on the inside and changes our mind and changes our heart, that it overflows into external righteousness, good works. You can always tell a person's spiritual condition because it will be made clear by the fruit of his life. There's no denying it. A good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. The parable ends with this enigmatic phrase, many are called, many are invited, but few are chosen. Many were indeed called, two entirely different groups. And even in the second receptive group, one was ejected. 
But if we have truly accepted God's gracious invitation, we stand in the righteousness of Christ alone, and that righteousness will always be made manifest in righteous living. The great uh, preacher G. Campbell Morgan said that if we stood before God and he said, why should I give you entrance into my kingdom? That there are really only three possible responses. The first response will be, well, because I, epic fail, did the best I could, gave lots of money, voted for the right political candidate, you know, helped old ladies across the street and didn't leave them in the median, because I did the best that I could, I'm not going to do it. Perhaps you'll be like the man when the king asked him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The second response is speechlessness. That we realize too late that we have no defense. We have heard the gospel, but we have not responded. We have wanted reward, but no king. We've wanted his blessings, but not him. And now we stand before him speechless because we know we have no defense. But the third and the right response, when God says, why should you gain entrance into my kingdom? Is because Jesus invited me to this party. And he has provided me with the clothes that I need to wear because my clothes are not good enough. Friends, that is the gospel this morning. What will you say when he asks you that question? Will you recite your list of what you think are good deeds? Or will you stand with confidence and say, I don't deserve to be here, but Christ has made me fit to enter in and to enjoy the provisions of the king. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for the glory of your gospel that you invite and you invite and you invite. And as your finite creatures, we shake our fists and we say, we don't understand you and we don't think you're right. God, for us to understand you. While we should never give up in the pursuit and there are things that we can know, if we could understand you fully, then we would be God, not you. So Father, I pray that you bring us to the end of our excuses, that you bring us to the end of our moral rebellion, that you help us to bow our knees before you and say, God, I'm not worthy, but through Christ, I know that you will make me worthy. You will answer my questions, you will calm my heart, you will speak to my mind, you will uh, cause me to live a new and different life. So Father, I pray that if there are those here today who have rejected your invitation, that today you would allow them to speak with me, one of our staff, one of our deacons, our Sunday school teachers, to just ask the question, what do I need to do? How do I work this out? What, What are the steps? How do I grow? How do I understand this? But for those of us who have trusted you for many years, God, make us conscious of all of the many little ways in which we spurn your invitation to a deeper walk with you. Ways that we try to be the king of our own lives and that just never works out well. We need you to be our king. And Father, we thank you for wanting us, being gracious enough to offer us again this day one more invitation.
to make our lives right with you. Help us today not to harden our hearts, not to put you to the test, but to be believers who step by step will follow you and grow in greater obedience day by day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.